I'm going to continue a series that we've been uh, doing for the last few weeks uh, called Basics. And uh, the topic I've been given to speak about this morning is why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? And um, Jesus, in the passage we just read, he gets his um, uh, disciples around him, his friends, uh, gathers around, and uh, he asks them, who do people say that I am? And it's the question that, I guess, is the question of the universe, right? The heart, the heart of the universe is this question Jesus asks each of us every day of our lives. Who do you say I am? And there's a sense in which the uh, answer we give to that question is all important. And they say, you know, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet, some say Jeremiah. We're not really quite sure. And Jesus says, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Who do you, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you, you, Jesus, are the Son of God, the Son of the Most High. You are the Messiah. And what Johnny's been doing for the last three weeks, I think really, really helpfully for me, is to create a sense of what the story was that these disciples, these first Christians were living into. The story that Jesus was a part of, the thing that he came to do. What Peter is saying yes to is everything that Johnny spoke about. What Peter was saying yes to was, yes, you are Yeshua, God saves. Yes, you are Messiah, God's anointed. Yes, you are Emmanuel, the son of the living God, son of the God most high. You are God with us. Peter is saying basically yes to the story that Johnny has been outlining uh, us with the last three weeks, uh, this basic story. What did you, who was Jesus? What did he come to do? Jesus is God's anointed and he came to bring God's kingdom. And so the picture Johnny's been giving us is this story of God's kingdom breaking into the reality of our world, that what God longs to do is to bring his vision for the world, his goodness, his joy, his life into our present, into our present reality. And Peter is saying yes, yes to that story. And today is Palm Sunday. Can I get an amen for Palm Sunday? Amen. And uh, this week we're about to, we're going into Holy Week. Palm Sunday marks Holy Week. And with Christians all around the world this week, we will be remembering the events of Jesus' last week. Uh, his movement from this moment as he enters Jerusalem to his death, uh, to that low Saturday where um, it seems as if all is lost and then into Resurrection Sunday in a week's time. Be there. <clears throat> but what we see in this Palm Sunday is that the crowds do the same thing that Peter is doing. They get it. They can feel it. They've been longing for God's kingdom to break in and here quite possibly, potentially, is the moment it's going to happen. Johnny talks about faith like being on a wire and you've got what's behind you and you've got what's ahead of you and there's only what's below you. And you're on this wire and the crowds, the disciples, can kind of reach out and almost touch God's inbreaking kingdom, his new reality. Who do you say I am? Jesus asked Peter and he says, you are the one. I think, I think this is it. I think you're the one. And the crowds are saying, we think you might be the one. This might be the moment we've been longing for, we've been waiting for. Everything that we have been wrestling with, everything we've been struggling with, maybe this is the moment. This is it. And then, and then, the passage takes a turn. Jesus, after Peter says this, says to him, that's incredible, thank you. That's incredible, what incredible faith you have. Now let me tell you what's going to happen. And he begins to tell them that he's going to be arrested. 
He's going to be mocked. He's going to be tried. He's going to be executed and killed. Palm Sunday very, very quickly goes downhill. The crowd turn. Where they were singing and praising, they quickly turn to baying for his blood. Where they want him to be king one moment, the next moment, they wanted him tried and executed. The crowd turns. The week goes downhill from Palm Sunday very, very quickly to the cross. Everything turns. If you have ever experienced deep loss, if you have ever experienced hope dashed, if you have ever said, if only, and then it's gone, you will have some idea of what it must have been for the disciples that week. This was the one, right? This was the one. Everything we hoped for, everything Johnny's been talking about these three weeks seemed to be going so well. God's kingdom breaking in, Jesus healing, uh, performing miracles, challenging the authorities, challenging the unjust structures. And just at the moment where we thought that he might truly become king and sit on his throne, where he might truly take his place, might expel the Romans from Jerusalem, take his place, what do we see? We see him on a cross. Victory turns, it seems, into failure. Not a throne for Jesus, but a cross. It seems that the Romans aren't the ones who lose. The Romans are the ones who win. If Jesus has a kingdom, then it seems like every other kingdom stamps it out. We see this man, Jesus, a young 33-year-old, executed, murdered by the state, hanging on a cross. All, it seems, is lost. And we see that sort of incredulity in the passage. Peter can't believe it. He cannot believe that this is going to happen. And so he takes Jesus aside and says, no way, this cannot happen. This cannot be the way. This isn't what the kingdom needs to look like. This isn't what I imagine. This isn't what it looks like for God to come. And Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Get behind me. You do not understand. This is exactly what the kingdom needs to look like. And so there's a twist in the story. It goes from good news very quickly to seemingly bad news. But here is Jesus' message. Here is what he seems to be saying. He says it in the, passage, in the passage we read. He says, I must go. I must go. There's a sense in which for Jesus, the cross is not a mistake. The cross is not an accident. The cross is not unexpected for him. He says, I must go. And so what the early Christians began to think is that possibly the cross is not just a failure, not just a tragic mess. What if, in fact, Jesus knew what he was doing all along? What if rather than this being a kind of break in the plans, maybe this is the plans being worked out? What if the cross is what the kingdom looks like? And the early Christians very, very early on were, were making this claim and it was scandalous at the time because the cross was a scandalous event. Uh, in Roman uh, times, Cicero, a great Roman writer, said you never talk about the cross at dinner, right? We don't talk about, what is it, religion, politics, sex or whatever. Don't talk about the cross. Don't talk about crucifixion, Cicero says. It's too shameful. And the early Christians are making the outrageous claim that it's exactly on the cross that we see God fully. We see God at work. Paul, right into the Corinthians, maybe 30 years after Jesus dies, says this. He says, I, I came to you and I wanted to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. It was the core of the message. And so we have this strange thing in Christianity that what seems like a failure is in fact the message, is in fact the way that it comes about, is in fact the kingdom being worked out in reality. Can I uh, go to the next slide? 
So I want to just say four things um, about the cross and about what it might mean for us today. I want to talk about love, uh, sin, spotlights, and then just end on and so. So love, sin, spotlights, and so. Can I go to the next one? Now this is a, a picture. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this picture before. Anybody seen this picture before? Okay, it's a picture of, um, well, you can see, a woman holding a flower. That's what it's a picture of. Um, Can we go to the next slide? So, when we see a picture, we see an image. We begin to think that we understand something of it. We grasp something of it. This is a picture of a young woman holding a flower. And it tells us something, some sort of truth. But what happens is, in order to really understand what is going on in the story. In order to understand the significance of that event, you need to kind of pull out and see the bigger story. If you didn't see the rest of the picture, you'd have no idea what was going on. It would mean one thing, but until you see the bigger story, only then does it begin to make full sense. And even to understand this picture, if my my son saw this picture now he would ask me what's going on and I'd have to explain to him that this was taken in 1967 and the Vietnam War was going on and he'd ask me what was the Vietnam War about and very quickly we'd have to get into sort of global politics and I'd have to explain American (laughs) foreign policy and how that's going today but you can see that in order to um, in order to understand that picture you need to understand the bigger picture here's what I want to say in order to understand the cross we need to understand the bigger story can I go to the next slide And the bigger story is that Jesus' death is the way that God brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's the story. The cross is Jesus' way, uh, Jesus' death is the way God brings his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We need to get the story right to understand what's going on. Or, Or let me put it negatively. If the story is we are all bad people, but God wants to save some people so they go to heaven when they die. It's going to be very, very difficult for us to understand exactly what is going on in the Gospels, what Jesus is doing when he goes to the cross. But if the story is that God is bringing his kingdom, then the cross takes on a whole new reality. The early Christian claim is it's in this event that God is bringing his kingdom. This is what the kingdom looks like when it comes into our world. When goodness comes into our world, this is what it looks like. This is what it needs to look like. That's the claim being made by the early Christians. Can we go to the next slide? So, love, sin, spotlights, and so. I'm going to start um, with love, and we'll go from there. So this story is a story of love. That's the first thing I want to say. This is a story of love. Now, I want to say that straight up, because... um, for lots of us, I get the sense, and, and what happens when you, do, when you do a talk like this is you do a bit kind of, of research. Um, I don't know if Johnny does the same thing, but <laughs> I find it helpful to kind of talk to people in the weeks leading up to a talk. What are people thinking? What do people think about the cross? And one of the things that I've found is that when it comes to the cross, there can be a little bit of apprehension, almost a little bit of fear. I think it's because we're quite good at accepting the truth that God loves us, that he is good, that he is faithful and kind. And then it seems like we get to the cross and it's like all of a sudden we are faced with, well, potentially what a, a kind of a judgmental thing. There's violence, there's pain, there's cost, there's sacrifice. It seems in some sense, and it will, you will have your own understanding of this, in some sense it seems to be at odds with the rest of the story. But the claim is that this is what God's love 
looks like when worked out in practice. So one of the lines in the sound, one of the things we cannot cross is that this is a story of God's love. This isn't about an angry father punishing a son. Uh, This isn't about wrath being poured out. This is about God expressing his love. And we're going to look at, in a minute, the way that this happens, why it needed to look like this, the way it does. But this is God's love being worked out. Go to the next slide. Um, N.T. Wright, very helpfully, I think, says, you know, we have this verse, John 3, 16, and, and we spout it out and we write it on billboards and on trucks by the side of the road. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's what's happening on the cross. That's the deep reality of it. The cross expresses God's love. For God so loved the world. And N.T. Wright says, you know, it doesn't say for God so hated the world that he killed his only son. It says for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Or 1 John 4, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And theologians have said that what we see in the cross is the the perfect expression of God's love, the fullest expression of that love. If we want to know what God looks like, if we want to understand his love, then it's at the cross that we see it. Can you go to the next slide? So love is the first thing. Second thing, spotlights. I'm going to go through these two first because I want to spend some time, you'll be pleased to know, on sin. Bed in. Here we go. Spotlights. Um, a few years ago, I went to um, Istanbul. Anybody been to Istanbul? Yeah, beautiful city. And there's a place there called Tokapi Palace. And um, uh, the palace has all sorts of jewels from around the world when the time, when the empire in that part of the world was very strong. They had all these jewels from around the world. And one of the jewels in there, I think it's called the, um, I think it's called the Spoonmakers, the Spoonmakers Diamond. And it's in a sort of a glass cabinet. It's the fourth biggest diamond in the world behind a few others and uh, the ring that's on my wife's finger. <laughs> I'm only joking, I'm only joking, player. So it's in a glass cabinet and um, the diamond sparkles. It's a beautiful diamond, incredibly large. And uh, the cross is like a diamond, I want to argue, in its complexity, in its beauty, and in a sense, in its mystery. The New Testament never sort of says, this is why Jesus died. It never gives us like the definitive account. You can't turn to like Ezekiel 5 or Romans 7 and find this is where it says why Jesus dies. Instead, what the New Testament gives us is kind of pictures, images. And so this diamond is in this glass cabinet and you have to kind of walk around it to get the full view. and, And what they do is they shine spotlights onto it and each spotlight sort of picks out a different part of the diamond. Paul says that the cross, in Jesus, God is reconciling the world to himself. Can you imagine that? In this event, in this, this man hanging on the cross, God is putting right the world, is bringing his kingdom. God is bringing his kingdom. Can we imagine that we could ever sort of grasp it in its, in its totality? That we could ever say, like, this is it. This is the final answer for why Jesus had to die. This is it, definitive, case closed. Instead, what the New Testament does is say, let's give you some perspective. Let's give you an angle. And so it talks about the cross as ransom. You know, like when there's a hostage and someone has to make a payment to buy that back, buy that person back. It's a bit like that. Or, or there's like some sacrificial imagery. You remember you used to go to the temple and you used to kill those, uh, those lambs and um, you used to kill the sheep on the Day of Atonement. Do you remember that? Well, it's a little bit 
like that. Or, or do you remember um, the story of Israel when they're rescued from slavery in Egypt? It's, it's a bit... It's a bit like that. Or do you remember the imagery from the battlefield? Do you remember fighting great battles and God's enemies were defeated? Well, the cross is a bit like that. But you'll notice that none of those does the New Testament ever say, here's exactly the way that it happens. Instead, what it gives us is kind of pictures. We have to walk around the cabinet. And as we walk around the cabinet, what we see is kind of spotlights focusing on different parts. And so for some of us today, we'll be drawn to one particular image rather than another particular image. And we need the totality of those images to bring us to understand the cross. One writer puts it like this. He says, we never understand the cross. Instead, the challenge is to stand under the cross. We never understand the cross. The challenge is to stand under it. The cross's power is not in the extent to which we get it in here. I'll say that again. The cross's power is not the extent to which we get it in here. The cross's power is the extent to which we allow it to work itself out in our lives. And I'll come to that at the end. Can I go to the next one? So, I want to talk about sin. Uh, So, love, first of all. Spotlights. This is an expression of God's love, um, This is, the New Testament says, we need different imagery to understand the complexity of it. And then I want to talk about sin. So, to do this, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit, because I want to get this right, because language is um, important. And I don't want to kind of uh, skim over this. I don't want to do this. um, And in justice, I want to just spend a little bit of time here, because of the language can be tricky. So, I'm going to do my best Johnny Hughes impression and sit here. Um, When uh, Johnny talked about the fact that we're looking through the book of Matthew, when when we come to God's kingdom, we're looking through the book of Matthew. And um, one of the things that we see is that when Mary uh, is conceived, when the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus, he says to her, uh, he will be born and he will bring the forgiveness of sins. And then, at the very end, just before Jesus is about to die, and we're going to celebrate this on Monday, Thursday, um, Jesus is sat in a room with his friends, and to celebrate his death, he says, uh, he passes them the cup, and he says, this is given to you um, for the forgiveness of sins. And so we see that Jesus' life in the book of Matthew is bookended, if you like, the sort of bookends of the forgiveness of sins. And that's the language that's used. What does God save us from? And the crowds are crying out, Hosanna, which means God save. What are they crying out for God to save them from? Um, according to Matthew, what Jesus saves us from is this word, sin. Sin, right? What a word. Confess your sins. Um, the seven deadly sins. I've eaten too many sins today. Right? In the scriptures, the concept of sin is a far bigger reality than simply the list of stuff we have done wrong. Right, God, I stole golf balls when I was 12. Um, I fancied my teacher a bit too much. You know, I, I um, envied something. Um, whatever it was, sin is far deeper than that. Sin is a big concept. And in the New Testament, sin is a force. It's a power. Now, last week, Johnny talked about the air that we breathe. Um, sin is like that in the scriptures. Sin is a force that pulls stuff apart, that attacks what is good. It's the power that rips families apart, that corrupts politicians, that causes shame and guilt and depression and anxiety. Sin is what makes, bad people, what makes good people do bad stuff. Sin is like a disease. Only more, it sort of has agency. It sort of acts. It's like a parasite, a cancer. Sometimes this force is given a name. In the New Testament, the name would be Satan. 
it's better really to think of Satan as the embodiment of this force, the personal expression of death or destruction. He seeks only one thing. Evil seeks only one thing. Destroy whatever is good. That's what sin is. And sometimes when we talk about the, the devil or Satan, we sort of talk in a way as if he has great plans, like he has a five-year plan, a 10-year plan, an agenda, right? He has, he has an idea of what his kingdom is going to look like. I think that's to give him too much, too much. He's not that creative, right? All that Satan does, all that evil does is pull apart whatever is good. That's what it does. It wrecks, it destroys, it breaks. It's about more than individual human beings doing bad stuff, right? Sin is at work in our world all around us. 400 million children today live in extreme poverty in our world. 27 million people are held in slavery more than any other time in the world. The list goes on. You don't need me to tell you about sex workers close to here or immigration and refugees in dinghies, Syria, CO2 emissions, child abuse scandals, chemicals pumped into the sea, broken homes, drug addiction, the porn industry, mental health crisis, the list goes on and on and on. What is that? That's sin. That's sin. But here's the thing. We are, all of us, implicated in that. What's interesting then uh, is that sin actually, I find, increasingly is recognized by the secular world. See, when we use that word sin, it sort of sounds like a religious word. And in one sense, that word sin is a religious word, but a word. But I don't think the concept is particularly religious. See, the secular world, the non-Christian world, increasingly knows that we're all sinners. Right? Again, they wouldn't use that word. They would talk about harm or damage or interconnectivity and systems and cycles of abuse and oppression. It uses other words, but the claim is exactly the same. Sin is me not thinking about where my food comes from or where my clothes are made. Sin is me living in a way that consumes far more than it contributes. Sin is me thinking less of her than him. Sin is the fact that I care more about the number of Instagram followers I have than I do about some of the figures that I've just read to you. That's sin. But don't forget that sin is a power. And so we live in this strange reality. We live in the system. We contribute to it, but we're also shaped by it. And one theologian, Friedrich Schleiermacher, said it like this. He said, sin is in each the work of all and in all the work of each. And what he's saying there is that the all, the sin, the totality of the world, those systems and structures of evil, we all contribute to them, but they also shape us. I'm selfish in large part because I was born and raised in a consumeristic society. I hung out in shopping malls. Shopping for me was entertainment growing up. Imagine that. No other generation has known that. Shopping as entertainment. Likewise, so many of my sins are committed because I was sinned against. We know this, right? We know at a micro level because I know that when I lose my patience, when I get angry with my children, with Jesse, say, he goes and punches one of his, brother, his brothers or sister, right? We know that much abuse is committed by people who are themselves abused. We hurt people because we ourselves were hurt and are hurt, and it leaks out of us. So the systems we're in, the structures, culture, film, TV, as well as family, it all shapes us. And so we go on perpetuating the problem. Sin is in each the work of all and in all the work of each. This is sin. And so we're all victims and we're all perpetrators. That's sin. And that's what the cross deals with. And so what we see is both things happening on the cross. We see the systems, the structures. We see Satan defeated. And we could talk about how that happens 
and there's metaphors and imagery used throughout the New Testament for the way in which Satan is defeated. The cross is like evil having one attempt at God. Right? The devil moves in and sees this as his opportunity. And, and, and particularly the early church talked a lot about this. What happens is that in a twist, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead. Death is defeated. Life has won. It's like the ultimate judo move. Right? <laughs> Where evil moves in, it's defeated by its own power. It's defeated by its own power. But as well as that, as well as the kind of systems and the structures of oppression being defeated, Jesus deals with the us problem. He deals with the you and the me. See, lots of us have an issue with this word justice. Right? The idea that God is just or needs to deal justly. But as Johnny prayed so beautifully a few minutes ago, right now in our world there are people, many people, crying out for God to act justly. Crying out for, and here's the biblical language, God to be angry. Because they are oppressed. They are enslaved. And I don't want to speak for them, but I can imagine if you're working in a sweatshop in Bangladesh or if your family are um, entrapped in slavery, then I imagine you're crying out for God to act justly. And here's the cry. Here's the cry. Put it right. Put it right. And so Jesus' message is directly related to them because Jesus' message is that God's kingdom is coming. God is going to put the world to rights. He's going to do it. And so the cry for them, the cross, makes sense. And I feel that actually when we think about it, we know sort of deep in our bones that given the reality of the world, given Aleppo and Auschwitz, we know, I think, that this is what it needs to look like for God to bring salvation. That the kind of quick, easy fix, the kind of, it will be all right in heaven, don't worry about it, everything's okay, doesn't do the justice to what we see in the world, doesn't quite carry the weight. We know that somehow, we're not quite sure how, but we know the cross sort of seems right given that the world that we live in. But what might it look like for God to bring his justice? What would it look like now for God to come and put the world to rights? What would it look like for you and for me? See, here's the problem. Assad is the problem. Hitler was the problem. McDonald's is the problem. Apple is the problem. Amazon, they're the problem. Those people who voted leave, they're the problem. Those people who voted remain, they're the problem. If they were gone, the world would be okay. No. The line of good and evil runs through the heart of every single one of us. Who is to say if they were not in a different position, they would have acted differently? There is no guilty and innocent here. No clean and unclean. So you see it all. Our anger and bitterness, our selfishness and greed, our pride. We are all in this boat together. I bought those trainers. I rented that film. I ate that meal. That's my carbon footprint. I did not share the infinite resources that were given to me. This system is our system. It's our world. We're all responsible. We did this. That's the claim. How can God say no to sin, say no to everything which is opposed to him, and yet say yes to us? How can God reject everything which is broken, which is harmful, and yet say yes to us? And so the cross is what it looks like for God in his love, in his great love, to reject evil and not reject us. It's what it looks like for God to kill off death and to give us life in abundance. 
And so Jesus, the God become man, makes a choice. Every day of his 33 years, he's made a choice. And this is the choice he makes. Do I follow God or do I follow me? And that day, as he stands over Jerusalem, looking down, the crowd singing Hosanna, he knows when he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to die. And the choice he makes is yes. Yes. And when he's in the garden again, and we're going to look at this on Thursday, when he's in the garden and he's praying, God, please not this. Please not this. He has a choice. And the choice he makes is yes. Yes to God's kingdom breaking in. Yes to the rejection of evil. Yes to the opposition of everything which is not of God. And he does it out of love for us. He has been with these people. He's been with us. He knows what we are like. And he longs to save us. And so Romans talks about the fact that it's Jesus' obedience which saves us. Jesus goes and he willingly somehow and mysteriously, he suffers the consequences for our sin. This isn't an angry father punishing his son. This is Jesus saying yes to his father's rejection of evil. Agreeing with it, choosing to enter into the consequences for our sin somehow. And mysteriously, he takes on himself the consequence, the weight of all that we do all that we're doing. Here's the point. We don't get away from sin by denying its reality or playing down its significance. We don't make sin less. We make Jesus more. We don't make sin less. We make Jesus more. Sin is dealt with on the cross. Done. God has rejected evil. God has rejected evil. And we long for the day when it will be worked out in reality. We long for the day when it will be worked out in our world. But we're seeing signs. We're seeing, it, we're seeing it happen. We're seeing God's kingdom breaking in. But God has rejected evil. And he has redeemed you and me. That's what the cross brings. And so just as I close, just as I uh, wind up. What does it matter? What does it matter for me and for you? There's um, a beautiful line that the end of the film Titanic and I saw that film in the cinema three times and I cried every time <clears throat> I was about 13 I think <laughs> my emotional development and um, there's a beautiful line at the end of that film Rose who's the woman the, the main character Kate Winslet is narrating the film and she talks about her great love the person that she loved uh, Jack and she says this she says he saved me in every way that somebody could be saved he saved me in every way that somebody could be saved the cross, just like that diamond in the cabinet, is complex. But not in complex in a way that it's not understood or it's impossible to grasp. But in a way in which it does something for us, which it will be different for every single person in this room. It will save us in every way that a person needs to be saved. Paul in um, Corinthians, he says that, you know, for those who um, don't understand the cross, don't get it, who just simply see the shame of it, it's very, very difficult to grasp anything. It's very difficult for it to mean anything. But for those of us, he says, who are being saved, or for those of us who are beginning to say yes, who, as Johnny talked about last week, are beginning to have faith, beginning to say yes, this is the story I want to live by. I don't quite get it, but I think I get something of it. He says, for those people, it's the power of God. And so what I want to say this morning is that the cross, like I said earlier, is not grasped. It doesn't make sense to us in here. The cross is power, as we begin to grasp something of it, as we live, as Johnny said last week, by faith. That's how we grasp this, faith. And that faith is not a kind of brainless, I'm going to reject everything, think nothing, I'm just going to live by faith sort of faith. This faith is a yes, yes, I don't get it, but help me to know more. 
shame is dealt with. The shame that feeds off sin is dealt with. The guilt that feeds off sin is dealt with. Anxiety is dealt with. I don't know what it is that you're struggling with today, but in some way, the New Testament is claiming it is this event, as Jesus hangs on this cross, that it is dealt with and done, and that we can live in freedom. The power of God. We're uh, in a minute going to come to communion. And uh, N.T. Wright has this lovely phrase. He says, you know, when Jesus was talking to his disciples about what, his cross, what the cross meant, why he was going to die, he didn't give them an atonement theory. He didn't give them a metaphor. didn't give them a piece of logic or rhetoric. He gave them a meal. I love that. When Jesus wanted his friends to understand his death, he gave them a meal. And one of the ways that Christians have said for 2,000 years that we enter into Jesus' death, that we begin to make it a reality with us, is to walk it, to pray it, but to eat it. We come together to eat today, to eat, to participate somehow in his death. So I don't know today how you come to the table. This might be something you've done lots of. It might be something you've done not very much of. I don't know. But as you come to the table today, know that you come to the God who is looking to bring his kingdom who fights fervently for you and for me. Johnny a few weeks ago said this. He said, the story, the big picture story of all of this is God bringing his kingdom. And the story of the scriptures, the story, this book, is about God expending his blood, sweat and tears to make it a reality. That's what we see on the cross. God's blood, God's sweat, God's tears for you and for me so that his kingdom become a reality in our lives and in our city. And so come today to eat, to participate in Jesus' death, that he might change us so that we might have that power of the cross inside us and in so doing might change us to be his agents of his kingdom in the world. Amen.